is Adam. We had the opportunity to speak with Jude Cole over Zoom video. Jude Cole is a singer, songwriter, manager, record producer. He does a lot in this industry, and he talked about where he grew up and how he got into music. Originally from Illinois, moved to Los Angeles at 18 years old to pursue a career as a musician. Jude talks about his time as the guitarist for Moon Martin, playing with the records, putting out his solo albums, eventually becoming a manager, a band manager, most notably known for managing the band Lifehouse. So we talk a lot about his time with Lifehouse and co-writing with Lifehouse, getting them signed to DreamWorks, even scored three films. So we hear about Jude's extensive career in the music industry and the first new record he's released in over 20 years. Talks about that as well. You can watch our interview with Jude on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. We love it if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Jude Cole. This podcast is about you, your journey in music, and we'll talk about uh, the new record you have out. Uh, where where are you in the country? I recently moved to Nashville. Oh, nice. What about you? I'm still in California. Everyone else has moved to Nashville. <laughs> yeah, I've started in California. I'm yeah. from, originally from San Diego. Uh-huh. Are cool. you in LA? Yeah, I've been here for uh, many, many years. <laughs> Brief hi- hiatus in uh, Colorado uh, after the earthquake and then moved back. But uh, no, since 1978. Wow. Born and raised in California or no? No, I wish. I'd be much younger. I'd be 18 years younger. I, I, moved, here when, <laughs> I moved here when I was 18. Uh, okay. Let's talk about before that. Where, where were you born and raised? Uh, born and raised in uh, uh, Quad Cities in Illinois. It's uh, Moline, Rock Island, Davenport. Some say Bettendorf. Some say East Moline. Uh, I, I was from East Moline. That okay. side. What was it like growing up there? Um wonderful it was a wonderful it was like almost like a tom sawyer type you know uh novel um when i think back on it my you know my memory of it is just you know everything was freedom as riding my bike anywhere no regulations no helmets no nothing no seatbelts sure. no parents really uh when i think about all of our friends it's very much like that charlie brown cartoon where the you know that's what our parents were I don't recall okay. any parents ever. It was <laughs> just just latchkey kids, or it was, no? It was just our group of friends, you know. Uh, and the and the parents were always in the home somewhere, but they never interfered, and they wow. never, you know, like they never came in and said something to any of us unless it was time for the friends to leave. Of course, something you know, something drastic. Okay, but they never would get involved in like if if we were in a fight people would get you know one guy would get pissed off and go home or the other would say like screw you you know whatever happened like no one ever no one ever interfered <laughs> it just didn't happen you know that's funny so when i recall our, our 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 youth you know I, there are no parents involved in those memories at all other than you know just the singular ones where i was specifically with my parents so, sure know. wow well how did how did you get to music <clears throat> well i started uh I was infatuated with music at a very, very young age. Uh, Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. 
And uh, my dad finally bought me a guitar because I would play the broom and then uh, uh, the Beatles, obviously, that first album came out and I, I carried it everywhere. And I was only, I, I, I was five or five years old. Wow. <clears throat> and I, I continued to, you know, just kind of my infatuation with, you know, I had a little cassette recorder. I would record things on the radio and things like that. But then I, uh, McCartney wrote Hey Jude and um, Rubber Soul. Uh, I think I was eight years old when that came out. Um, he was French inhaling, if you recall, the back of the cover, you know. Oh, yeah. French inhaling a cigarette, you know, uh -huh. a fag. And uh, I'm, I'm eight years old. I'm thinking, that's pretty fucking cool. Right? <laughs> so exactly. I run, I run to my... Uh, my mom's closet and I get this, you know, the cardboard centers of the hangers. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah the, 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 the spindle or whatever they call it. Um, and I broke that in half and I took it to the fireplace and I lit it on fire and inhaled it. And I coughed, uh, you know, profusely for, you know, probably 15 or 20 minutes. It made me literally gag. So I thought maybe I won't smoke like McCartney, but I tried. You tried to smoke the, uh, the hanger. Yeah. <laughs> was that it with you <laughs> one 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 taste of the hanger and it was over yeah but then like everybody else you know we get you know um or, or i should say every musician my age you know get a band together around 11 12, 12 years old and then we started playing our schools my first job was at my middle school and uh it was a very very big deal <laughs> um Got to play all these CCR tunes. So, oh wow! And then the next thing I know, our sound is out. We're you know mid song and it's gone. And uh, and I look over and the and one of my teachers and the principal is standing there. And the principal has the cable, the power oh, cable. Wow! Hand, like, Sorry, we had to pull the plug. You were too loud. <clears throat> so that was the end of that show. Uh, and that was in middle school. Yeah, that was uh, okay. probably seventh grade. Well, you said that like your your the parents just kind of let you guys kids do what what you were gonna do. So, would that did that make it fairly easy to practice some at people's houses or like how, where and like they how did. did you were they just like group of friends that you had knew a kid that played drums and a kid that played bass and how did the original band kind of form? Well, you know, at that time, uh, if a drum if, if a guy had a drum set, well, then he was the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Of course. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, even even progressing from there, you know, like if somebody had the van, well, they were going to be in the band somehow. And if they couldn't, if they had no musical talent, you know, they'd be the light guy or whatever. But uh, right. anybody with a van was was valuable. Um, no, it was a really fun time and then a challenging one, too, because at that time they didn't have the Zoom that, you know, you probably grew up with or whatever like um like, like a zoom recorder no no all the charts were wrong oh like, got it the level of zoom that you guys have is like you'll get in and find out where every major nine chord is and like no 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 that's 11 right they like listen closely like no 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 that's a that's a that's not a hi-hat that's a tambourine like you know everything is so dissected properly now whereas before um 60s 70s it's like um I, i'd get the sheet music to horseman with no name you know and i'd go like this doesn't sound like horseman with no name. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
it would it would be oh i don't have my guitar i'd show you kind of an example but it would be closed but no you know so we had like muzak you know okay. muzak in elevators and doctor's office and things and and then the charts would all almost reflect that oh sorry sorry that's my sister all good um charts would almost reflect that uh uh, music more than the than the real thing because there weren't people that were doing sheet music you know they were an older sect right so they weren't into this popular music much so they just kind of churn it out and turn and burn it you know mm-hmm. uh, so it, it, what we got and what we had access to was just listening to the radio and if we had, you know, the opportunity to record it on a cassette, then we could, you know, we could do it over and, and over. Learn it by way. ear. Yeah. Okay. And then you'd get together in a band rehearsal. And, and since, the, you know, living in the Midwest, there were no professionals to teach you how to uh, rehearse either. And so it was really just like natural selection. You know, the leader would emerge <laughs> and no one would ever call him the leader, but everybody would look to him. Like, you know, when it was time to have a, when, when there was a problem. They knew, yeah. They knew who to look to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And those were really fun days because, and I, t- I talk about this a lot now, they were fun days because there was no business involved yet. We were too young mm-hmm. and I lived in an area where there was no music business anyway. So the greatest uh, carrot dangling for like, why do you want to do this was just like, I want the girls to like me. You know, I want to be cool. I want to sound as good as those songs on the radio one day. Like, hopefully I could I could be that good. You know, that was really the carrot. And that was quite an incentive. Um, Then moving to L.A. years later and then, you know, when I was 18 and then kind of working my way into the music business. Did you move to L.A. to pursue music? I did. Okay. So you knew that this is what you wanted to do when you were yeah, before you were 18 and you had a plan to get, to, how'd you get to LA? I sold my car and I got a plane flight. Oh, wow. And you just flew out what one way ticket and then you one land in Los ticket. Angeles. And then what do you do? It was a propeller plane too, you know, like, Oh my gosh. With, uh, you know, a hundred and something people on it, but it was propellers. <laughs> Hard to believe I'm that old. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you made it from Illinois. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it it was quite a journey and uh, it, it was a fluke. You know, I was coming out to visit a buddy for a month and hopefully to get something tangible for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just happened, his name was Joe, and he happened to belong to the Musicians Contact Service, which was a little trade magazine you could find band members or sell equipment or any number of things okay. before the internet. So this is the way the musicians uh, communicated. And uh, a guy was looking for a guitarist, which my, my friend was, but the guitarist needed to sing, which my friend did not. And so okay. he passed the phone over to me and as a complete fluke, and I had just gotten there a week earlier, um, just gotten to Orange County to, you know, to stay with them for a month one week earlier and I'm on the phone with Moon Martin. Moon Martin was on Capitol Records. Mm -hmm. So the next thing I know, they're picking me up and bringing me up to Sun Valley and then I'm rehearsing with them and I got the job. And it wasn't a month later I was in Europe touring. Wow. 
and 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 another irony to that was that I was watch you know the midnight special was on every uh, I believe it was every Friday night um, <clears throat> Saturday night or Friday night curse Don Kirshner's was one night and then midnight special was the other but I can't, I think it was Friday night and you know religiously that's the show you would watch they had everybody from Sly and the Family Stone to Fleetwood Mac to Elton John. All the stars were on that show. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. seen clips. Yeah, from. yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, so I'm here, and a month later, I'm touring Europe, and we're on the Midnight Special, you know. Wow. I, you know, it was, a, it was a pinch me kind of moment. <clears throat> it wasn't making any money, you know, but I was doing some really, you know, some things I just only dreamed of. Mm-hmm. So we did that show twice and uh, and uh, toured quite a lot. I, I, I had toured as a sideman quite a lot before I became... Both times you played it with Moon Martin. Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Did a lot of (laughs) shows with with other artists. In fact, uh, right, right. I just saw one on the internet uh, yesterday uh, of me with Dwight Twilley on American Bandstand uh, because the keyboard player had just passed away. Oh wow! uh, Very, very sad. Kevin, Kevin McKelvey was his name, and uh, he played with Dwight, and I just learned of his passing. So you know yeah so like, wow so you played with moon martin for a while and then what the you at that point you started to what pursue a solo career after that uh the solo career was really by default I was okay a, i was a band guy tried and true you know i was born that way in my town which was a very blue blue collar midwestern town to even think of yourself as a solo artist is like dude you know, really? <laughs> you didn't do those kinds of things. Okay. Um, so I had the band mentality, but I couldn't get anybody to play with me. Like I just, I wasn't a real like street kind of guy hanging out at all the clubs. And I didn't, I kind of lived in the Valley and I was, I was really working on songwriting. And when I wasn't doing that, I was touring. Mm-hmm. So I never got into that LA street scene or anything like that. Um, which I was kind of glad about because a few years later, then there was all those bands like Poison and Rat and that whole Sunset Boulevard scene. And I was so far removed from that, I would just kind of look at it almost like, I thought, what are these comic book characters on Sunset Boulevard I see all the time, you know? Right. Uh, so I was never a part of that. I was just a songwriter. And uh, that's all I cared about doing. I would come home and get in my bathroom where it sounded good, sit on the floor and then just write just constantly write and write and write and rewrite. And uh, uh, now I've lost your question, of course. By, oh, it's by curious. Like, so, yeah, so you, after playing with uh, Moon Martin for a while, then what you joined another band, right? The Records? The Records was, were in London and they flew me over to join their band, which I did. And, uh, and that was uh, a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, to get to have the kind of practical of being, not being English, but feeling very much English in this band because the other three were, and we were living in London and rehearsing in London, playing all the British shows and shows around the UK. And um, and they were really good, you know, they were really good. And that was, a, it, was a, it was a great learning experience on the, on the writing front <clears throat> because Moon, see where I came from in the Midwest, it was a pretty much rock, you know, and then mm-hmm. prog rock. Okay, sure. Um, sure. And then soft rock. 
So you had Jackson Brown and James Taylor on one hand, you had Yes and Pink Floyd and <laughs> Kansas on the other. And then you had Styx, which was going from prog into more the rock thing. And then Fog Hat and like, you know, Led Zeppelin and like uh-huh. anything bad or good that you would consider bad or good now. That, that's pretty much the template. Pentatonic scale stuff that was just, you know, all derived from blues. Mm-hmm. Um, in all in all three genres pretty much except maybe prog and then so i got out here and i i thought i was getting pretty good and i'm with moon martin and moon says well first of all i need to see if you can play the music and i said well i'm, I'm pretty sure i can play it i heard some of it on the you know you sent me the record he said yeah but i need to i need to know you can play it like you need to play it so he showed me uh uh what, what was the song uh Bad case of loving. Okay. Here, I'll grab this because I'll show you what I mean. So if if some of it was a, you know, like a. I love this. <laughs> so that was bad case of loving you, right? And I'm like, well, that's easy. I can do that. And I went. Like okay, now in the verse I want you to I want you to just just do this. And I grabbed the guitar and I went, okay, I can do that. He's like, no, no, this. No chugging. <laughs> now at the time, now this sounds probably relatively simple to you, but at the time I couldn't diffuse the difference of what he was you know what are you trying to say moon like i it took me maybe a couple of minutes to even really process that no he's like dumb i want you to be dumb (laughs) i thought he was joking he goes no play Uh dumb you gotta play dumb so it took me a a, that was an assimilating thing you know it took a a couple of months probably for me to really get dumb Mm -hmm. um and was it like, I, I mean, to, to get dumb, like, does he just want you playing a certain way? And like, okay, like you're, you're being too, what, flashy if you're chugging a little bit more or like, what does he mean by dumb? <laughs> well, I, I think that um, it's, it's actually, um, and I talk about this in like, in the, one of the new records, I have a song called The Dark. Mm-hmm. And I, I had Ricky play, uh, the drummer play very much like Nick Mason. And so it's just right symbol snare to okay. boom and it, you I mean you could almost be a beginner to and play this, you think. It's uh-huh. not as easy as it looks. But the 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 methodology behind it is that every part has its place. And then once you put that so now you've got the part two with that simple Uh drum part and these cogs all start making this wonderful clock and and if you don't play your part and you try to improvise and you sound more like fish you know or uh the grateful dead well that has its merits but it's not going to be that hooky thing that you know that the pop leader of the band wanted i see so that was a really great uh teaching the utility uh uh, that taught me 
parts are essential to what mm -hmm. made the Beatles. Like if you listen to their outtakes or their live takes, they sound identical to the hits because everyone knew their parts. Mm -hmm. No one was it's, improvising in the sense. Yeah. So to this day, whenever I get a chance to play with musicians that maybe don't have the, the, the seasoning or whatever, you know, they don't realize that. No, I'm focused on the kick drum. No, you just played a double kick drum there. Don't play a double kick drum there. That ruined that that moment. Or right, right. Here, we, or right here, we need the double kick drum. Um, or you you fill. I don't want to fill before this chord. I want chorus. I want you to. I want you to go into the chorus and crash on the two. You know. And so you know, guys that are not seasoned with rehearsing day in and day out for months at a time don't realize that one guy is actually listening to everything that's happening on the stage or in the record as a, mm -hmm. as a producer does in the studio. And uh, it comes from really focusing and isolating your ears to one part at a time. That's mm -hmm. gonna sound very novice and simple to somebody, to a producer who's been doing this his whole life, but a lot of people don't know that. No, but it uh, makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, instead of, cause, I would imagine like, yeah, you'll go into a situation where the drummer might not play the same fill or do the same thing every time, or the guitar player might play the rhythm a little bit different. Or like you said, like, you know, maybe have it. So it's not as like simple, like it's like, like you were doing, like those are little things that sound minor, but in the, the grand scheme of the song, it, it could definitely throw it off. Right. And throw people well, off. You know, one, one, one difference in a kick drum pattern can throw the guitar player off thinking he's, you know, you're going somewhere else and, 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 so, and so on and so forth. The same with the bass fills and, and, uh, and all that. And then generally, <clears throat> you, you know, you want your bed to be pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. So that someone can float through it, you know. You don't want it. You don't want a a robotic performance every night. You want you want some freestyle, but uh, I don't think you can gamble with <laughs> the bed. Right, you're almost better off doing the more robotic, because if you start going too off course, at least, then at least for popular music, you know. Right. No, it but makes jazz, sense. Jazz though. is another thing that I'm. I'm no. I'm no jazz. Uh, aficionado but i watch and and listen and marvel at jazz music and i you know, i think they they have a similar methodology but i mm -hmm. um but they're just such brilliant musicians many of them that they can yeah they can just a lot from a little right know? right right definitely so after you do the the records that's is that when the solo career kind of begins no no i toured with del shannon and i toured with uh dwight twilley Oh, so you did, a, you did, yeah, you were doing other band stuff. What, what year did you start playing as a solo artist? Like late 80s? I got signed to Warner Brothers in 1985. Okay. As a solo act. As a solo artist. How was that? I mean, that must have been, been a big moment. I mean, you're used to playing with other artists that maybe had been signed, but to sign your own deal. It was surreal, really, because um, I was really struggling. I had okay. toured, I, I toured so much. And it was hand-to-mouth touring. This was not Four Seasons touring. You know? mm -hmm. This was Motel 6 touring. Right. Van, sleeping in the van touring? Well, not sleeping in the van, but sleeping in a room that made, maybe made you wish you were in the van. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, no, it, it, was, it was wonderful, uh, but it was, it, was, it was tough because, you know, 
a bunch of broke musicians out on the road together and then those that day at a time and uh, there wasn't well anyway the, the lifestyle was different let me put it that way but mm-hmm. without going into the you know the gory details of it all and pretty soon i i got home and i i, I went man i can't do this anymore i'm i was already 24 years i was only 24 years old but i thought to myself if i keep doing this i'm going to lose myself more i'm not going to be happy so I, I have to find a record deal or I have to go back home. So I kind of gave myself six months to get a record deal. And in that time, I got a bartender. Uh, a friend of mine knew Sonny Bono. And Sonny Bono had a restaurant oh. on Melrose Boulevard, Melrose Avenue. Uh-huh. And I got a bar- job as a bartender there. And in, the, in my sixth month, I got my record deal on Warner Brothers. So it really literally felt like the hand of God just came down and said, <laughs> here. So I was, for all intents and purposes, kind of broke. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I find myself on Warner Brothers. And that must have been life-changing. No, it was not. Really? It was a $40,000 check in which I had to pay my lawyer and taxes and I found myself broke relatively soon <laughs> with a record. Okay. Game, you know? Right, right. And so I'll never forget, like, you know, after my first record and while I was working on my second one, uh, Michael Bay, you know, the director. Yeah. Well, he was like a friend of my girlfriend's friend. My girlfriend had a girl had a, a girlfriend who went out with Michael Bay. Michael okay. Bay was like this rich kid from Brent. Brentwood, you know. Oh, really? I didn't know and that. So I guess he, you know, so he hears like, oh, we're going over to Jude Cole's house. Yeah, he's an artist on Warner Brothers. And Michael Bay was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. You know, so they come to my apartment and he walks in. <laughs> and I'm probably 26 or 27 at this point, And he's probably, well, I would say five or six, maybe seven years younger than me. Okay. And he walks in and he looks around and he goes, <laughs> you live here? <laughs> and I went, oh, uh, yeah, I, I live here. He goes, whoa, I can't believe anybody lives here. And um, that was a, that was a, 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 kind of an awakening to like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I should, oh, I mean, I wish I had more, you know, I, right. I well, he probably yeah. assumes, right. You're like, you know, oh, this guy's signed to Warner brothers and he's probably expecting to walk into some mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, wait, what? you're signed yeah, to a record great. label. And I, I guess that's I, the more reality of the, the whole thing. Right. Yeah, well, I, and I thought my apartment was pretty nice, you know. I'm I mean, sure it was, was but if it, from it. a rich kid from Brentwood comes there and it's like, oh, all snooty. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think he meant to be, but it was it was just something that came natural for him. <laughs> because he came from such a... a, a, a like, you know, he came a, from money, right? areas in, in Los Angeles. And so sure. I felt very self-conscious after that. I was like, man, I got to... I got to work harder, you know? And then, so I did. And, and my, cause my first record came out and didn't do uh, much was okay. what, they would, what they would call lost in the Warner shuffle. Um, meaning I didn't have a lot of cloud. I didn't have a big hit single that anyone could go. This is, we know we can run with this. So mm-hmm. it just, they kind of just let it go on its own and do, and then I kind of got the feeling I might lose my deal. And so I thought I needed a, a heavier manager to help me through this. And I went and found a guy named Ed Leffler, who was Van Halen's manager, and he managed me. 
Wow. And that did help. And I found a new producer and that was David Tyson. And David came over and together we were really in sync musically. And I think we made a real good record. It was called A View From Third Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a very, uh, that was a very fun time. That was a very good record. And before the record came out, that song was all over the radio, all over the country. Wow. Uh, Babies Tonight, the first single was. Uh, yeah. It's getting, it got to number four on the pop charts. Was that your first song that you ever had on the radio? I would imagine, right? Absolutely, yeah. What was that like, hearing it, was, it on the radio for the first time? Yeah, it was magic. It, it was like you keep waking up in the same good dream, you know, and you turn <laughs> on the radio and it's on, you know. Wow. And, I, and I'd fly across the country. Now, I don't know how this, I don't even know if I could find anything that does this to this day, but I had a Walkman, you know, with a, uh-huh. with a cassette player on two on each side. So it was a double Walkman I, where you could record one to the other. And it also had a radio in it. Wow, and, that's uh, quite a, a high-tech piece of equipment. I don't Well, this know. is, okay, so this is 1990 now. But still, the rec- tape the tape recorder, you know. <laughs> oh, no, it was, it was like, for a songwriter, it was great because you could ping pong, right? But right. Uh, uh, I was flying across the country and Every, I would tune into the stations as I was flying across the U.S. And I'd hear Babies Tonight, like, seriously, by the time I got to New York, like, let's say I'd hear it, like, 10 or 15 times. And uh, just flying across the U.S., you pick up these radio stations. So, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, was, it was a real magical, like I said, like a dream that you keep waking up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, you know, it was it was a it was a bit of an awakening on the financial side. You know, um, I had made a publishing deal that was a bit of a life changer at the time. Um, but the record sales were not like I wasn't a household name, and I wasn't selling millions of records. And I, I, um, my manager didn't want me to tour, so I did a lot of promotional touring. Did seven straight months of promotional touring, which is basically you know, visiting every radio station in the country. Right. And bringing what, them- why didn't you want you touring? That doesn't make sense to me. You know, I think uh, in, in retrospect, and he's, he's deceased now. Um, I think in retrospect, I think he wanted to wait until I could play the theaters and then, and, and larger. Um, larger rooms. Bring in the right amount of money to make it worthwhile. Now I became a manager years later and I, I kind of disagreed with that sentiment. Excuse me, but Kesara, um, uh, Sarah, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it is what it is now. Um, right. Uh, and I, I, I did not like touring. So okay. it was music to my ears. That kind of worked out for you. <laughs> You're like, wait, you don't want me to tour? Perfect. Yeah. So I didn't tour a tremendous lot as a solo artist. Okay. Those that saw me, I had a great show with a great band, and it really was like phenomenal. Um, and and you know the, there's a lot of people that saw those shows to this day that come up to me and say oh my god i saw you at the tower theater in houston texas or whatever and uh but i didn't tour a lot as a as a solo artist i was really much more into writing and mm-hmm. making records learning how to make records and you made records for 10 years right as a solo artist from 1990 to 2000 i did and I still do, I, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about the one that you just put out, <laughs> but. But, but I think, uh, you know, 
like having two kids changed my priorities. I had, okay. yeah, it's kind of irresponsible for me to think that I can just, uh, you know, take the roll the dice and take the gamble on whether I can sustain myself as a musician and, a, and an artist with two kids. Like I got to put food on the table. I didn't have a backup. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I uh, became a manager. And how did you, and, and you started managing Lifehouse? Was that the first yeah. band you managed? Mm -hmm. And, and how do you find Lifehouse oh, no, Life and an, a young singer named Lindsay Pagano? I got them kind of record deals, uh, Lindsay with Warner Brothers and Lifehouse with DreamWorks. And uh, and how do you find like uh, both these artists? Are you going out to shows in LA and trying to like kind of scout people, or how did that all happen for you? Uh, they find you. Um, okay. Ron Aniello, the producer of the first Lifehouse record, was one of my best friends. And uh, he he played me Jason's voice. And I just went, well, you know, I, I think I can get this signed. If I can get it signed, I'd like to manage it. Mm -hmm. uh, and Lindsay was the same thing. She was a 13-year-old singer that I said, well, she was singing at her own birthday party. But it reminded me of Michael Jackson. And so I I went home and I wrote some songs for her. And then I flew her to Los Angeles with her family and um, put them up in a hotel. And then she got to sing with me in the studio. And then I shopped those three songs as manager and uh, got her signed to Warner Brothers. Wow. So that was kind of the first, uh, my introduction to being a manager, really my own little miniature entertainment company with me writing the songs producing the songs and then shopping them as manager and then negotiating the deals and doing all of that was a, you know it was really like it was i think it was born out of uh, an era where i just said yes you know uh -huh. and then would figure out whether i could do it or not uh, when you're a broke musician you just say yes <laughs> <laughs> playing, uh, yes now figure it out later. on the on the joni mitchell's next gig yes oh really are you a jazz player yes <laughs> <laughs> of course i am <laughs> you know, i'm uh, studying jazz 101 you know right um, right <laughs> well I'll, you know, I'll tell you a really quick funny story about why that is when i was uh, 19 um blair um What's his first name? Something Blair was the bass player of Tom Petty's band. Okay. Um, and Tony Dimitriotis had called me and he said, you know, you worked with Del Shannon on his record that you know, Tom, Petty, Tom Petty had produced this Del Shannon record that I sang on. And Tom wanted me to come and rehearse with them and see if I did an audition for the bass part. And so I said, well, and I'm 19 at the time and I'm like, Tom Petty wants wants to try me up as bass player. Well, I, I mean, I play guitar, you know that. He goes, yeah, but can you play bass? I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I can. He said, oh, well, maybe you should think about that. <laughs> so I rented a bass. I went and rented a bass and I started playing to Tom Petty's music. And I'm like, of course I can do this. This is, I can do this. So I called him back a few days later and, um, And, and I said, I can, I can do this. And he said, oh, well, um, yeah, you know your friend, Howie Epstein. I'm looking, I'm, Howie was a songwriting friend of mine. And so Tony knew that I knew 
that we knew each other. He said, and I said, yeah. He said, well, we just hired him. I went, oh, okay, great. So I just blew a gig with Tom Petty, right? Ironically, then I get a call from the road with how, from Howie Epstein, who happens to be out with Del Shannon playing bass at the time. And he said, Jude, can you do me a favor? Oh my God, please. You know, I'm playing bass with Del Shannon, but I just got the job with Tom Petty. Will you please come out and be the bass player for Del Shannon? So I ended up being a bass player. Okay. But with Del Shannon for a $300 a week gig, as opposed to, you know, being in Tom Petty's band. Oh, wow. <laughs> so after that, I never said no. Okay. Just yes. Everything was yes. Yes. To, yes to everything. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that landed you. Yeah. Obviously a, a, a couple of big management gigs. I mean, Lifehouse has a huge career. I scored films. I, I've written hits. I've produced hits. I've managed hits. You know, uh, I, I've done a lot of things. I, I, I was an interviewer uh, on a television show. W w was I a natural for every one of these uh, gigs? Absolutely. Heaven's not. But, uh, <laughs> but you said yes. But I said yes. And you figured it out. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest thing, right? Of course you can do everything. And just go figure it out before. <laughs> well, you know, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained, as they say, and you only uh -huh. live once. But sure. um, yeah, you know, I, 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 there are people that are better at everything that I do, I guess. And there's, you know, a lot, a lot of people who are a lot worse, I suppose. My game is really now at this point just to, is a personal best thing. You know, like, can I do, can I do better? And that's what these the two records I just made are really about that. Like, can I do better? And what was the inspiration behind, you know, 20, 21 years later deciding to put out a record? Or were you always writing? I mean, it sounds like you wrote for a bunch of other people as well as your own stuff. So no, I didn't. I, oh. I really didn't. I, you know, when I became a manager, I wrote with Jason Wade, the the singer. Yeah, singer. Like he and I wrote a lot together. Okay. Um, and so many of the singles were co-writes with Jason and I. But no, as a manager, I was very sensitive to the artists that I would either be working with. And there were quite a few in the interim, you know, like didn't, didn't last, the relationships didn't last uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason. But, um, and then there was Lifehouse. And I, I never felt um, like pursuing my own career was going to be really good for the management side of things. Um, I know for personal reasons, like I wouldn't want to be an artist with my manager out there promoting his own work. Like I'd always wonder if maybe my opportunities were benefiting him more or if he were, you know what I mean? Like I, right. I, it would just be too weird. Uh -huh. So I didn't want to release records while I was a manager. Okay. And, um, things have slowed down with, for, for all these, you know, re obvious reasons, COVID and everything else, like mm -hmm. things have slowed down to a point where I can go, I can comfortably talk about myself. And uh, I can comfortably make records and and just kind of do my best. You know, what, what am I going to do with them? Well, you know, like what does a painter do with his work? Does everything go, you know, on Times Square, or does everything go in a in a New York gallery? Or, you know, you, sometimes you just paint to have a beautiful picture, and then, you know, maybe one day somebody recognizes it as being a cut above the rest, mm -hmm. or or maybe not. But uh, 
I think my work is really good and I, I, I'm really happy with it. Um, in fact, there are some songs on Kudaman that I think are probably the best songs I've ever read. Um, and then the Coolerator record, which is a covers album, right? It's an homage to the 50s and 60s uh -huh. uh, with me really trying to record it with those sounds and those kind of techniques. Well, that was just fun as, a, as being a fanboy. You know, it was just a total fanboy record. <laughs> Were those records both done during like the COVID lockdown situation or? No, the, the or had cooler started prior been, has been in the works for 10 years. And like, oh, okay. And it's really been kind of a, a labor of love. I would work on it when I could. Um, but as I said, you know, as a manager, I just, I didn't always have time to work on my own music. And then when I did, I would, you know, there's the, creating of it and then there's the administrative part of actually like getting it mixed getting it mastered uh getting it printed and doing all of the things that it takes to actually you know kind of put it out and so mm -hmm. i didn't want to I, I didn't have time to do all that <laughs> sure so um well the new record though is that i mean you, you talked about the other one being a 10-year project what about this this most recent record the of all originals uh, the most recent I, I had put together as an EP, and I kind of put that out as a kind of toe in the water, but I didn't really put it out. I just, I wanted to do something a couple of years ago, and then and I thought, ah, EPs, I don't really like EPs. I want, enough, I want a full record. So I added the other five songs to it and put the complete project together. And um, there's a song I, I really intend to do a video to uh, called Partners in Time. You know, I think that as a songwriter, I have been able to grow. I have mm -hmm. been able to push myself and I have been able to kind of do the work. And uh, in all those years of management, I never stopped writing. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy about that because it, it's a very therapeutic and uh, kind of peaceful living. Sure. Are you still writing? Uh, is it something you do like a daily thing or just kind of as inspiration? It's a comes? daily thing, but it's all over the map now. I'm doing things that you might not suspect. Okay. It's even, you know, getting into meditation type stuff. Like I, I, I'm just interested to do anything I haven't done. You know, <laughs> I'm interested to play instruments I haven't played. I'm interested to do things I haven't done. You know, the, the prospects of me releasing something and getting it heard by the masses is just not, there's, there's really no forum there for that. And that was a big carrot, you know, to get something on the radio at one point. It was like, right. the reason you did it. Uh -huh. um, without that, it's kind of like, okay, I'm still going to do it, but I, you know, there's only so much resources you can put into it. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. And are you still man still managing bands? I think the pragmatics come into play interview. Uh, I still manage Lifehouse, and, um, and they recently put a record out. We interviewed them uh, in the beginning of this yeah. pandemic. Okay, yeah, they're 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 doing a similar thing where you know Jason's got uh, Lifehouse. His real passion right now is a band called Oswald. Uh, mm -hmm. He and the guitarist of Lifehouse, Steve Stout. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, they're both. Uh, yeah, that's who we spoke with, both of them. Yeah, and they're great. And they've been putting out two records a year. They are just churning and, you know, the <laughs> yeah. stuff. 
and they keep getting better and better and better. And so it's kind of fun to watch, you know, it's fun to watch Jason who got on the whole uh, uh, carousel of merry-go-round of you know, interviews and shows and interviews mm -hmm. and shows. Like when you're a creative person and you want to write a song and make a record, that's really the most kind of mentally orgasmic thing you can do. Mm -hmm. And only to switch hats and then go to this other side, which is dog and pony show. It's a carnival act. It's a it's an every night same thing. Oh, right. how are you doing? Yeah. Oh, really? My record means the world to you, and it changed your life. Thank you. Like that. And and you hear these things, and they they start they register at first, but then when you're on tour for years and you hear this from everybody in every town, I think you you get desensitized. I would it. imagine, right? Yeah, it's almost. It you've heard it so many times where you're like. And it doesn't mean anything different to the person telling you that, but it's like, you've heard it all, right? I mean, if I told you like, your record changed my life, probably heard that a million times. It's for a, it's for a different personality. <laughs> and I, I can understand why the Beatles didn't tour. You know? <laughs> uh -huh. um, it's not for, like uh, a friend of mine for many years, Kiefer Sutherland, the actor, and we had a record company together. I mean, uh -huh. he was such a celebrity that we'd literally be sitting at lunch and you'd feel it. You'd feel the presence of someone in the uh, in the restaurant. They'd stop in their tracks and you could feel like, oh, shit, somebody's stopping in their tracks. Someone wants an autograph on a napkin or something. <laughs> and, can I swear on here? Yeah. And they're like, no fucking way, dude. No fucking way. Dude, check this out. And they're, and they're like, dude, you got to talk to my mom. Hold on a second. You, oh, just say hello man. to my mom. Just yeah. say hello to my mom. And it's literally that. It's literally that annoying. And I'm like. You know, if I was Kiefer, I would tell this guy to go fuck himself. <laughs> right. trying to but he can't, right? Because then it's all over TMZ and like, oh, do you believe what Kiefer Sutherland said to the blah, blah, blah? Right. He can't. Uh -huh. And so you become, I think you become this person who's always kind of miniaturely running for president. Right. It's no, for sure. And that life is something I... I don't have anything against it for people who enjoy it. I don't. I uh -huh. think it's a wonderful thing if that's the way you're wired. I couldn't do it if my life depended on it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like to each his own and it takes all kinds and all that, you know. Um, it's just not something that I was cut out for. Mm -hmm. I, I like privacy far too much. I live up in a mountain where nobody is near me. And, you know, I, I, I that's the, just the way I am. I don't like, uh -huh. I don't like intrusion. Sure. <laughs> Especially <laughs> when I'm eating. Yeah. yeah. Right. You're at a restaurant and a hundred people come talk to my mom. That's a good one. I've, that's probably something that you've seen a hundred times. Do my voicemail. <laughs> yeah, there used to be, remember that, uh, Robert Smigel, uh, the comic on Saturday Night Live, they would uh -huh. do the, the comic strip thing. Uh huh. I always laugh because he did this one with Madonna, you know, where she kind of she's doing a little dance thing for like music or whatever music. Um, and this kind of foreign guy walks up to her and says, uh, Can I please have your autograph? And <laughs> she's like, um, Yeah, sure. And she signs his autograph and he, he walks away from him. And then he comes back and he goes, You know, can I please stick my finger in your ass crack? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, sure. And he just puts his hand on the back of her. Pack. And I'm like, that's perfect. Right, that's right. That's perfect. 
That's Can I so stick good. my finger in your ass crack? <laughs> oh man, that is hilarious. That's oh, uh, real quick, I'm 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 curious to know because I have a funny Lifehouse story for you. Um, when I was in what year was it? Junior in high school, Lifehouse played our prom at our high school in San Diego, and they won like some girl won a seventeen. 17- 2002, I believe it was. Either you had a, you had a big prom. Yeah, they, they. Well, we won like a. Okay, so this girl that was in my grade, <laughs> she won like a Seventeen magazine contest. Mm. I don't know if you remember this. And they came I and don't. they played our our high school prom. It was just so ra- like speaking to the like a million things that they have to do as artists that you probably don't want to do showing up and playing some high school prom probably wasn't on the top of their list. <laughs> well, you know, Jason uh, and the, and the guys that were very successful, they had, uh-huh. um, they, they, they had a, a, they have a greatest hits record that would surprise you, you know? Right. No, they have so many songs you wouldn't realize. Yeah. A lot of people hear that and go, man, I didn't realize how many hits this band had. Uh-huh. They had a lot of hits but they were never written about like by the spin magazines mm-hmm. or the, you know, the, the Rolling Stones, like would always dismiss bands like Lifehouse and for whatever reason. And I think when you live that kind of career where you're, you know, shaking babies and kissing hands, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, from, for radio. And, and that's your, your existence is to make records, to tour and to visit radio. Right. Um, it's not the Radiohead dream. You think, like, oh man, you know, I'm reading these wonderful things about about myself, and they're getting to the new into the nuances of every lyric I write, and right. you know, they want to no. know what kind of coffee I drink, and they just want to know what makes me tick. You know, you're not that's not uh, your life when you're Jude Cole or when you're Lifehouse or when you're right. many bands, most bands, uh-huh. most bands. Only the coveted, highly coveted few get that kind of really hyperbole attention of, of like whoa you know like sometimes they overthink it you know like in james taylor's case in the 70s he was on so many covers of rolling stone and they deciphered so much that he finally realized man they're reading shit into my lyrics that aren't even you know aren't even there true right everyone should have that kind of existence as an artist because mm-hmm. you know this is the mentality that most budding artists have in their dreams of like no man i don't want to be about that i really want people to think this about me or that about me. like <laughs> dude you'll be lucky if people think about you at all at all right get a song on the radio and then worry about like you know whether people think that you know you were influenced by muddy waters or not okay right right but right now it's it's really uh... and so there are not a lot of, of acts that get that kind of thing, but we all wish at some point in our career that we were one of them. And then at, at some point you go, well, okay. Like, in, and I think in Jason's case, you know, he's made a lot of money. He's had a tremendous amount of success and he doesn't want to bend over for radio anymore. He just doesn't want to do it. Right. Um, well, and- what's there to offer him? anymore? <laughs> I came from 16 years of doing radio, man. And it's like to the point where when I was kind of on the outs of it, it was like, no one, get, no one cares. No well, one cares anymore. In my era, which is just the one 
a little before Jason's. I think we're 20 years apart, right? Mm -hmm. So in my area, there was ind independent promotion and payola. Oh, right. Of course. So you didn't have to do all that stuff. Uh -huh. You were you got to be an artist and you did interviews and the manager would protect the artist from having to go out and, and make himself or herself accessible to every single person on the planet. Mm -hmm. But when they broke down that, uh, the, when the Joe is growth thing happened and the hitmen and all that um, with the independent promotion, that was a nasty word. You weren't allowed to even utter it in the halls of the record companies. Mm -hmm. And so they very cleverly figured out, well, we don't need, we don't need to be paid. Just give us your band. Right. Let us steal your band's audience. And that was a hefty price for bands who wanted to be on the radio uh, to pay because they would trade their, you know, that's why you would go to a lot of shows and behind the, you know, the, the band playing would be, you know, Kiss FM or, you know. No. Yeah, that's where I so came they from. Were, 91X. We, we would trade. I mean, it's just classic. Like, okay, if we wanted the offspring, we had to play the 10, you know, crappy bands, not crappy, but new signings that they, you know, whoever was working the record had like, okay, well, you're going to add my, these three bands that we just signed. But when your Christmas show comes around, we're going to dangle the, you know, whoever can draw to, to be your headliner. Right. So if you were a band making $50,000 a night in, in, as your, your kind of. Uh, like your guarantee. As your normal guarantee, if it was, let's say, 50, then you would get an offer from a radio station like WPLJ or one of those, like, you know, New York stations. And they'd, they'd say, well, we'll pay 20. Right. If that, and, and or we won't pay you. Right? <laughs> and the unspoken is like, you're, you'll take the 20 and we'll play your record and you bet. And you'll, you'll hope that we'll play your record. We won't even let you hope that we play your record if you don't do the show. Right. And that was, that was the, that was payola all over again. Of course. Right. And it probably it's a... still is. I'm not really involved in doing it anymore, but it probably now without COVID, before COVID struck, of course, but um, I'm sure it still works in very much the same way. You have oh, yeah. I came from it right uh, even through, up through COVID. That's when I left. I mean, if you look at it, it's like, um, say, life, say we wanted Lifehouse to, to do the show or they wanted us to add their record. It would be like, well, let's, what can you do for a giveaway? Can you give us like, 15 signed vinyls and you know, meet and greets and five meet and greets. Yeah, we'll do that. They're playing here. Okay. Then we'll add your song. You know, I mean, there's not necessarily, but it's they'll offer those things in hopes that you go, okay, I will add the record or we'll talk about tickets to the show because we'll be giving them away. Now everyone knows that Lifehouse is playing wherever because we have, you know, 50 pairs of tickets to give away. Exactly. That's right. And, and it becomes a deconstructing process mm -hmm. and you don't know it. On one level, you're, you're, you're getting more radio airplay. You know, people are aware, but their awareness of your band is going in the wrong direction because you're looking like radio horse. Mm -hmm. That's a really tricky thing. Yeah. To um, uh -huh. And so uh, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. 
So what, what was the trade-off? Okay, you could be a band that had a lot of radio success, which is great because radio success will pay you for the rest of your life. Right, of course. Or you can be a band who's going out and selling arenas, which is great because you're making so much fucking money in the arenas <laughs> right. that maybe you can retire and, and never have to work again. Right. None are foolproof. Mm-hmm. Uh, none are guaranteed. Right. Um, and so you have to just kind of go with your instincts on what kind of an artist do I have? As a manager, you go with the instincts of what kind of an artist do I have here? Um, and so, yeah, I guess you'd have to play to every band differently. I'm sure you, the way you cater to Lifehouse would be different from how you cater to another artist. Like, okay, well, I know that they, they work well doing X, Y, and Z, whereas this artist might be better off if we try to do, you know, they're a touring band. We're going to put them on the road, you know, 11 months out of the year, even they might not have a radio hit, but they can draw 500 kids in each town that they go to and we'll we'll play that well i had to i had to make really i think uh poignant fork in the road decisions with lifehouse because jason wade is a very unique person just a spiritually and wonderful humble you know beautiful guy Mm -hmm. the reluctant star if ever there were one there he, he doesn't have any interest in being a star so when you have a personality like that who has no interest in being a star you have to know like stardom doesn't happen by accident. And if it does, it doesn't stay. You know, uh, you have to want to be a star really bad and you have to really want it even more than that to keep it up. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I really have a radio band here. Um, he likes the touring okay, but he wasn't a showman in like, he wasn't setting his hair on fire and, you know, coming down in, <laughs> right, right. Know, in a water balloon. And like he, he, he wasn't doing anything. He was just playing his shows and doing them, them very well. But he wasn't a real showman um, and so of theater proportions. So it was kind of that uh, you know, I had to make decisions based on like radio was really where it was after Lifehouse. Sure. But it was a demoralizing process over 20 years because all the shaking of the hands and the politics that are played to get on the radio and all of the rest, there are real rewards in it. But at this, at some point it's like, okay, enough is enough. And I think, you know, Lifehouse has done a great job. They've, they've done just a tremendous amount of touring, a tremendous amount of uh, radio and. Uh, yeah. Super hardworking band for sure. And the, and Oswald is dope too. I, I mean, <laughs> I really like that band. Oswald is Jason's release from all that. Like he gets to call his own shots. He uh-huh. gets to do it his way. He never has to do an interview if he doesn't want to. He doesn't have to do a radio station if he doesn't want to. And he puts his own records out and I think he's in heaven. I love that. And I'm glad that he, and I, that, that to me, it makes you feel better that he, or good actually, really good that he was willing to spend the time and, and chat with us for our podcast because he doesn't have to do that, no. especially anymore. Yeah. It's rare that he does that. He doesn't, he doesn't really like to do it much. Yeah. So him, yeah, him and Steve did and it was it was a blessing for us. You know? Yeah. Well, Steve's have been a real burst of energy too, because Steve is younger and came into this, like he, he was a fan of the band. 
Well, he saw it as an opportunity more than like the guys that have been in the band for 20 years, you know, right. Guys have been in the band for 20 years. What time is the show? Like, you know, no offense to them. They've done a great job. Right. But they've but just been doing like, it for so long. Man, come on. We should you know, do this to the artwork. And like, he just has this energy to do things that I don't think anybody else really had. Uh-huh. And so that was really a nice thing. And then I think Jason learned this about him because of the Oswald. And so uh-huh. it's all, it's all been a really, you know, we'll see where it goes from here. That's sure. kind of fun. It's very cool. Very cool. And thank you so much, dude, for doing this. I mean, yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's so cool to speak with someone that, you know, has been doing this for so long and has such knowledge and in, in all aspects of, of the industry. I think yes. it's so cool. I- <laughs> my infinite wisdom here right yeah now, for sure I, I always i used to tell me uh lifehouse a lot I, i'm a good manager for you not because i'm so smart just because i made so many mistakes <laughs> and i won't let you make them i like that well i have one more question i want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists no <laughs> i don't i like that you don't none okay <laughs> i'm look the only thing i can add to that is that i i don't think i think we've taken mentoring too far okay most artists that i see that make it didn't have mentors they didn't mm-hmm. they found a way i, I, like I heard that. a thing that dave Grohl was talking about once and i'm like oh my god that's how i got signed he said this thing that's just identical to what I did. I had a, I was BAF, broke as fuck. Uh-huh. I lived in a single apartment with a cassette deck, you know, like one that's hooked up to your stereo receiver. Right. And then I had a boom box. And so I would record my guitar part and vocal into the boom box, take the cassette, put it over to the cassette deck that was in the stereo, play that through the speakers, record another boombox cassette doing the bass and the harmony. I got signed to that. Wow. You know, like your own so, little four track. So I wasn't going to a seminar, you know, or learning how someone else wrote that. These tricks are all good, I guess, you know, to learn what people do. But I think there's a little too much importance, especially now with YouTube, where everybody wants to teach you all their tricks. I think your tricks are what's going to be really important. If you're learning somebody else's tricks, like that's cool. But if you don't know how to, you know, reinvent them into your tricks, then this mentoring thing is, my point is, I think it's been taken. So no, I don't have any advice to do your shit.